And we see here that the solutions, the solutions are particles that are very small. Very small, they do not settle when we link the container or solution with the solution. Colloid, the particles are larger, and suspension, the particles are even larger. A good example of suspension is blood, because it contains cells, the blood cells. And let's see some characteristics of these mixtures before we go to the next part, which is chemical bonds. First, solutions. Very important to know about solutions. The solutions are homogeneous mixtures. And it is about two things. The solute, which is a particle that is dissolved, and the solvent, which usually is water. Maybe other things, but in biological systems we refer as a solvent, universal solvent, the water. And the solute, like a good example here is sugar, blood sugar, that we have it in the plasma. The plasma is the liquid part of the blood. We said first, don't get confused, blood is a suspension because it contains blood cells and it contains plasma, which is the fluid part. Plasma is almost 96% water. And when we talk about only about the plasma, then we have a good example of solution, just the plasma, not the cells. And in that case, we have glucose dissolved in the plasma, which we said is 96% water. So that's a good example of a solution, the plasma. And it contains not only glucose, it contains other things that are dissolved in that plasma. So going back to this diagram, we see the picture and the suspension. We see the two tubes of blood. One of them, where the blood cells have settled, and on top of the blood cells, we see this yellow part, which is a plasma. It's homogeneous, um, and it contains glucose, contains hormones, contains many other things. Solutions are transparent. That's one of the physical characteristics of the solutions, um, like sugar. Air is a gas solution. That's a different type, but it's considered a solution. Salt. Most solutions are um, in the body, are liquids, solids, or even gases. The oxygen that we breathe, it gets dissolved in the plasma first. So when we breathe, the air containing oxygen gets into our lungs. How the oxygen gets into the blood? Well, first goes through the membrane of the alveolar sacs in the lung, reaches the blood vessels, and gets dissolved in the plasma the oxygen. Then later the oxygen will get into the red blood cells and we see that with more detail when time comes. But plasma contains oxygen also dissolved. And how we express this to get an idea how much how much of a particular substance is contained in a solution, we talk about concentration. Concentration may be expressed in different ways and there are some of them are listed here. One of them is percentage. Percentage, where the hundred, the hundred um, means different parts, I mean different, you can use different units, but you express it in percentage. Like we may say, 
when we dissolve salt in water, we can say 10 parts of salt in 90 parts of water, that's a 10% salt solution, when the total is 100. That's one way to express the concentration. The second way to express the concentration is in milligrams per deciliter, per deciliter. What is a deciliter? Deciliter, and we follow the metric system, you know the liter is a unit of volume. We measure the fluids with liters. A deciliter is one hundredth um, of a liter. And we can express that as percentage, as percentage. Milligrams per deciliter. Like glucose, for instance, we express the glucose like an 880 milligrams per deciliter. So very used unit of measuring the concentration. Actually, glucose, urea, different types of hormones, amino acids, uh, sodium, many times we express the concentration of these solutes using these units, milligrams per deciliter. And it's very helpful, especially to make calculations about different things. And the third type is use <coughs> molarity, which is expressed as a capital M. And it means the number of moles of a solute that are dissolved in one liter of solvent which we said usually is the water, it's considered a universal solvent. What is a mole? A mole is a, is a particular unit used, it's very useful, and to have an idea of this, equals to the molecular weight, here we go back to the uh, atoms and molecules, molecular weight is the sum of the atomic weights of all the atoms that are components of some particular molecule or compound. But we express this in grams, in grams. We have an example here, the glucose, which we saw the formula, this is the generic formula of the glucose, six carbons, 12 hydrogens, and six oxygens. If we find out the atomic weight of each of these atoms, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and counting how many atoms of each are in this compound, we will get to this number, 180, 180.12 atomic mass units. But we express it in grams, and we say 180 grams of glucose. If I get glucose, and I got 180.12 grams of this glucose, and I dissolve it in one liter of water, then I will have a solution of glucose that I can say is one molar solution of glucose. That's how the mole uh, is expressed and that's called molarity. And what is the trick about the mole? I mean, the, the usefulness of this is that we can compare different compounds and establish the following. One mole actually contains that number of molecules, that number of molecules, 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd potency. It's a lot. This is a number that was calculated by this guy called Avogadro's. Avogadro's number was called. Because this guy using different type of experiments and mathematical calculation established that if you do this, if 
you get the atomic weight of a compound and get the, uh, an amount in weight, like we do with glucose, 180, and dissolve it in water, then I will have one molar solution, which, which means that in that solution, I have that number of molecules of glucose. If I do the same with sodium, I will have, I will have a different weight in grams or milligrams. And I mix it with water, I will have one molar solution of sodium. And I can compare one molar solution of glucose equals one molar solution of sodium because both contain the same number of molecules. That's the usefulness of this um, uh, unit called mole, yeah, which is called molarity. When you use solutions like saline solutions or dextrose, when you uh, uh, put an infusion to a patient, um, electrolytes of different types, you, you sometimes see on the labeling all these units expressed milligrams per deciliter, uh, parts per cent, or molar, molar uh, solution, one molar or 0.5 molar of potassium, sodium, or glucose. So that's the importance of getting familiar with these units and know that they can be used to express concentration. This is to express concentration. How much of that solute is in this solution? That's what, what the, uh, the summary is. In particular, this concept molarity is very useful when we talk about osmosis. Anyone remember what osmosis is? Osmosis? You heard the term? Yeah? Yes, it's movement of water. It's movement of water. If you have two systems, two types of solutions, two systems containing different solutions, and those solutions have different concentration of solutes, then you will see movement of water from one side to another. And that's why it's important to remember the concept of concentration of solutions. We will talk about osmosis and we'll have a lab on osmosis next week to have that concept better understood and uh, clear because that's really important for physiology. If you know about osmosis, have the concept clear, you can explain why people with kidney disease or heart disease, they get their ankles swollen, why people um, get congestive heart failure, why they have ascites, uh, accumulation of fluid in the abdominal cavity or the pleural cavity, commonly called water in the lungs. All that is explained by osmosis. So it's good to have the concept of osmosis clear. We'll get to that point uh, in the review of our chemistry. So all that is about solutions. All that is about solutions. And we will be talking about solutions all the time, especially in the physiology part. And you will use these units of concentration. Colloids, heterogeneous mixtures. The particles are not evenly distributed. Some examples are here. The cytosol of a cell, because if you go inside the cell and see this in the cytoplasm, we have this substance called cytosol. But it's a gel-like substance. And that's what all these organelles are, the molecules, large molecules, and so on. So that's, it looks like a gelatin. That's how the colloid is understood. And suspensions, blood, we said, is a very good example of a suspension. 
because it contains cells and the cells, the cells will settle down when we leave the tube resting for a number of hours. Water and sand is another example. So the particles are large. The particles are large. You can see usually the particles, they do not lose the physical properties and we can separate them by physical means. There is no chemical bonds, as we said in the quiz uh, question. Any questions to this point about solutions, colloids, and suspensions? And the differences which can be seen in the table also, just to mention. So let's go to the next part, chemical bonds. That's what we start today. Okay. What are chemical bonds? Chemical bonds are those relationships that happen between atoms, and specifically between electrons of two atoms, two or more atoms. It's a relationship that involves energy. That means that for this to happen, some energy must be involved. The electrons determine this. The number of electrons, actually, of each atom will determine what type of chemical bonds are formed. And all this happens in the nature, but we can also make or combine different atoms in different chemical reactions. Different types of chemical reactions will happen in our metabolism, in our body, and it depends on the compounds or molecules that are present and the number of electrons that participate in these chemical bonds. So let's describe some of the types of chemical bonds that we see usually in the physiology of the human uh, body. The electrons are important for this. And uh, the electrons, and again, we go back, last time we talked about the planetary model, the orbital model of the electrons. Well, in order to understand chemical bonds and chemical reactions, we need to have, we need to use a model of the atom. And in this case, the electrons can be described as occupying areas, areas like shells around the nucleus. And each shell contains a number of electrons based on energy levels, kinetic energy, potential energy, different attraction between the electrons and the protons and neutrons in the nucleus. It's like a planetary system, kind of. And the atom can have up to seven shells or seven layers of electrons around the nucleus. But the shells can have a specific number of electrons. Like the closest to the nucleus can have only two electrons. The second shell can hold up to eight electrons. Three, a maximum of 18 electrons. So depending on how many shells or how many electrons the atom has, different type of chemical bond will happen. And there are not, not that many 
molecules or compounds and the chemical reactions that happen in our body. So we'll see that it's easy to figure this out, how this chemical reaction happens. So remember those numbers, shell number one can hold two electrons, shell number two a maximum of eight electrons. Those electrons are called valence shell, the ones that are in the outermost shell. Which are those? Well, it depends on what atom we're talking about and how many, like, how many electrons the atom has. But all those that are in the outermost shell, they are called the valence shell. Why? Because they are going to participate in chemical reactions. They are the ones involved in the chemical reactions. They have the most potential energy. They are far away from the nucleus. That's why they can be involved in chemical reactions. And there's a rule that we use to understand how this chemical bonds and chemical reaction will happen. And that's described here as the octet rule, the rule of eights. It's like saying an electron is happy, I mean an atom is happy as long as they have eight electrons in their valence shell. Valence shell understood as the outermost shell of the electrons. But what about hydrogen? Hydrogen has only two electrons. Well, no more. Two electrons are in the closest to the nucleus. That's all that hydrogen has. So for the case of hydrogen and helium, they are happy with two in the outermost shell. But for the rest, eight electrons in the outermost shell is what the atoms like to have. They are stable having them. And that's a force that kind of desire is the force that bring the atoms and molecules together to form chemical reactions. Now, the atoms to participate in these chemical reactions or chemical bonds will have to gain electrons, lose electrons, or share electrons. So they can get eight. We'll see some examples of how this happens. We see the example of helium with two electrons and the outermost shell complete. So that's the way the helium is happy, having two electrons in the outermost shell. And if that doesn't happen, the helium will try to get two. For neon, we have eight uh, electrons in the outermost shell. And uh, they can have more or less depending on the situation, but tries to have eight in order to be stable, in order to be kind of happy. Hydrogen has one electron, but having two will be stable. And that's the reason why the hydrogen is found in nature as H2, two molecules of hydrogen. They share, they share the two electrons they have, so they get together and remain together. The carbon has four electrons in the outermost shell, so it needs four more in order to get stable. Oxygen has six, it needs two more. And the sodium has only one electron in the outermost shell, so it needs seven in order to have eight and be stable. So let me ask you, for sodium, for instance, sodium needs seven to complete the eight in the outermost shell. 
What is easier for the sodium to do? Gain seven electrons or lose that electron that they have in the outermost shell? If they lose that electron in the outermost shell, what's the number of the next, the number of electrons in the next shell? Eight. So it gets stable. That's what sodium does. So it depends. The behavior of this electron depends on what type of chemical compound we're talking about, what type of molecule, how many electrons they have in the outermost shell. So that will determine three types of chemical bonds. Ionic bonds, covalent bonds, and hydrogen bonds. These are the most important type of bonds, and we usually find lots of examples in uh, physiology. Especially covalent bonds. Covalent bonds are very important in different uh, molecules, like proteins, carbohydrates, lipids, lots of covalent bonds. Ionic bonds, atoms that gain or lose electrons. And if an atom lose or gain electrons, they become charged. Because if they lose one electron, they are getting imbalanced. Now they have lost one negative charge, which is an electron, and they will remain positively charged with one charge. There's a difference in the number of protons and electrons. Remember, it has to be the same. But if that atom loses or gains, electron will be positively charged or negatively charged. If the atom, if the atom gains an electron, it turns negatively charged. And we call them anions. If the atom loses electrons, it becomes positively charged, and we call them cation. And now, if they lose or gain electrons, if they have charged now, positively charged atoms will get attracted to negatively charged atoms. That's how the ionic bonds work. It's an attraction of atoms that are charged now, or positively or negatively charged. And here we have the example for sodium chloride. That's the best example of an ionic bond. We have the sodium here. The sodium with one electron in the outermost shell. And we said for sodium it's easier to lose one electron so in the next shell, they will have, or you will have eight electrons. That would be perfect for sodium. If we face the chlorine atom, the chlorine atom has seven electrons in the outermost shell. For this chloride, it's easier to gain one instead of lose the, eight, the seven in the outermost shell. So one electron is practically transferred to chloride. Sodium loses one electron and becomes positively charged. That's the reason why the sodium, look at the symbol here, sodium, and compare to the symbol here. Sodium with a positive charge. And that's what we call ion or electrolyte. Sodium with positive charge now will get attracted to the chloride ion who gained one electron and became negatively charged. Now the sodium is positively charged, the chlorine is negatively charged, and they attract to each other, and they form this ionic bond. 
We can do the same for different atoms or compounds like sodium, potassium chloride, uh, bicarbonate. Many of these ions, we have them in our body, in the plasma, circulating as sodium chloride in solution. If you get a plasma and measure the amount of sodium and chloride, you will find You will find them like that, in solution. Sodium chloride, salt. Salts are usually, they have this type of ionic bond. And when, if they are not in solution, if they are dry like the salt, they form very nice crystals because they get arranged in a geometrical shapes of different types. They form pyramids, they form rhom uh, rhomboids or um, uh, cubes crystals because the atoms get arranged in a way that form geometrical shapes, very, very uh, well balanced. And you see here a representation of molecules, atoms of sodium and chloride with charge that get attracted to each other, forming all this structure like a cube. Now, thanks to this arrangement is that we can dissolve this, dissolve this salt, dissolve the sodium chloride in water. Well, we'll, we'll, say, we'll see that again when we go to osmosis and solutions. Covalent bond, that's the second type of bond. Covalent is about sharing, it's about sharing electrons. And depending on the number of electrons that the atom needs, they will share two, they will share four, or they will share even six. And according to that, we count in terms of pairs. If they share two electrons, we call single covalent bond. If they share four electrons, it's a double covalent bond, and they share six, a triple covalent bond. And in that way, sharing electrons, they will complete the eight electrons, following the octet rule. They will complete the eight electrons of the valence shell. We have two types of covalent bonds, polar and non-polar. Why? Because covalent bonds imply the two different type of atoms or compounds getting together usually. And sometimes they share the electrons, but they get a geometrical shape or arrangement in the space which determines a partial electrical charge. And that's why we have polar covalent bonds. They are not like sodium or chloride with one positive charge, but they are slightly charged in one end of the molecule. That's why we call them polar. Nonpolar, well, they share the electrons in a very equal way, and there is no charges or partial charges, electrical charges after that. Let's see some examples. The covalent bond, the carbon. Carbon is the best example. Carbon, as we see in the atom configuration, it has four electrons in the outermost shell. So it needs four more. Well, it's hard to lose four electrons. It requires a lot of energy. It's hard to gain for electrons, it requires a lot of energy. So following the principles of energy, this makes sense. The reality is that 
carbon to gain or to have eight electrons in the outermost shell will share electrons with hydrogen. And the hydrogen has only one, so it needs one more. And the hydrogen will share one electron with the carbon, so that's why the carbon arranges with four molecules of hydrogen, four atoms of hydrogen. And we get this. The carbon is now counting two, four, six, eight electrons in the outermost shell. Hydrogen, each hydrogen has two electrons, and that's what the hydrogen needs. And this, for instance, is a unit, CH4, is a unit of uh, what we call the uh, carbonated compound. That's an example of uh, methane, CH4. We add more carbons and more hydrogens, we have different types of compounds. But following the same principle, the carbon will share electrons with molecules of hydrogen. This is an example of a covalent bond. In this way, we have long chains of carbon and hydrogens, carbohydrates. We have carbon, hydrogens, and nitrogens. We have proteins. All of them contain all these types of covalent bonds. Here we have another example, the oxygen. Two atoms of oxygen get together and we have a molecule of oxygen which is expressed as O2 because if you count the number of electrons there when they combine now each atom of oxygen will have eight electrons in the outermost shell is sharing they're sharing two electrons with another um, atom of oxygen and this is a covalent bond we usually express this with one line, meaning one pair of electrons, two lines, two pair of electrons. Covalent bonds. In nitrogen, they actually share three pairs. We get three lines connecting the two symbols of the nitrogen. Like we see here, there are three pairs of electrons being shared in the molecule of nitrogen and two. Equal sharing of electrons. That's what we call a non-polar covalent bonds. And the most important thing is there is electrical balance. There's electrical balance. Like carbon dioxide, CO2, is a non-polar molecule. A non-polar molecule. Now CH4 is also a non-polar molecule. Because the electrons are shared equally. There is no of an equal distribution of these electrons. And that's how we express it. The carbon with two molecules of two atoms of oxygen sharing two pairs of electrons with each carbon dioxide. And that's the arrangement in the space. In chemistry, sometimes we have to express what is the special spatial arrangement of this of these atoms and molecules. And if you see this, the two oxygens are in both sides of the carbon. So the charges are equally distributed and this is a nonpolar uh, molecule. What is a polar covalent bond? 
That's when the electrons are shared unequally. And now we have electrical imbalance. So the molecules are electrically polar. Depending on the molecule that we're talking about, they will have partial electrical charge in one end of the molecule or negative charge in the other end of the molecule. They don't get to have a complete charge. They're usually partial charges, charges that are expressed with the letter delta of the Greek alphabet, which means variation or difference, small difference. Like saying, this is a little bit charged, but it's not nonpolar. It has an electrical charge. And therefore, it has the properties of attract. Like, let's say, if we have a polar molecule, covalent bond, that results in a polar molecule, they can attract ions like sodium or chloride. The best example of polar covalent bond is present in the bonds of water. Water is a polar molecule. We present it as two atoms of hydrogen, one atom of oxygen. The oxygen is more negative. Hydrogens are two, but they have a positive charge. So if we see the molecule of water, they are sharing electrons. Yes, but the oxygen has more mass and more electrons than the hydrogen. And therefore, the oxygen side will be negatively charged, partially, and the hydrogen side will be positively charged, partially. That's why the water is called a polar molecule. And it's like this. See the oxygen with the two hydrogens? Actually, there is a particular angle that is measured here between the both molecule atoms of uh, hydrogen. And that will determine this, a partial negative charge on the oxygen side and partial positive charge on the hydrogen side. That's what we call a, mol a polar molecule. The water is the best example of that. It actually has the shape of a V. And here we have the differences among the three types of chemical bonds that we just described. Ionic bond, there is a complete transfer of electrons. And the polar covalent bond, an equal sharing of electrons. And nonpolar, equal sharing of electrons. Regarding the charge, in the ionic bond, the ions become charged particles, complete charges, like one electron. <coughs> polar covalent bonds, they have a slight negative charge in one end and positive charge in the other end. And nonpolar, the charge is balanced among the atoms, so the molecule is nonpolar. And some examples at the bottom, sodium, water, and carbon dioxide, examples of each of the chemical bonds that we just described. Comments, questions? Polar covalent bonds, like hydrogen bonds, are very important in organic molecules. Hydrogen bonds are a very strong force to get the molecules together. 
It is not actually a chemical bond, it's an attraction in terms of their charges. For instance, the DNA. DNA is a double helix of uh, units called nucleotides, but that double helix is maintained in the position it is by hydrogen bonds. Proteins are very complex molecules. They have different shapes, and those shapes are determined by hydrogen bonds being attracted in different angles in different ways. And the water, the water, another fact that we mentioned before, is called the universal solvent. Because thanks to these polar characteristics, they can get into the molecule, the atoms of sodium and chloride and separate them. And that's how the water dissolves the salts. Because it has um, polar characteristics. And uh, the other thing is that those covalent bonds, the hydrogen bonds, determine the different states of the water that we find in nature. Gas, liquid, or solid. If there are more hydrogen bonds, that means that the water is getting solid. If we start breaking hydrogen bonds, it become liquid. Keep breaking hydrogen bonds, and it becomes a gas. The molecules of water are attracted to each other, like we see here. The hydrogen side, which is partially positively charged, gets attracted to the negative, the negative end of a different molecule. And that's what we see. One central molecule of water being attracted to four more around it. And think about this in 3D configuration. All this is in the space, actually. In chemistry, we play with models, little balls with sticks and determine different angles. That's a very good thing to figure these molecules, how they are in the nature. And if we break these hydrogen bonds, then we get the molecules separated, more or less. That's what I was saying. When we get the water into liquid form or gas form, depends on how much, how many hydrogen bonds we break. Now, that attraction between hydrogen bonds determines the physical characteristics of water, usually it's liquid. And that is very strong. Those bonds, uh, hydrogen bonds, are really strong. They keep the molecules of water together. That particular force that keeps the molecules of water together is called the high uh, surface tension surface tension. We see this insect like walking on the water is because the weight of this insect and the weight applied to the area of each of the legs of this insect applied on the molecules of water is not so strong. The attraction between molecules of water is stronger than the weight of this insect equally distributed in all these legs. And that's why we see these type of things. There's these small insects walking on water because the molecules of water are very, very strongly um, are attracted to each other. 
Well, that's the reason why also we see the water, like uh, little drops, arranged like drops, we see in morning dew, on the top of our cars every morning. Or we see the snowflakes, particular arrangement of snowflake, is because of the attraction between molecules of water. When you get into chemistry, you get into very, very, sometimes very beautiful shapes. Beautiful shapes. It doesn't look beautiful when you see it on the paper, like letters and symbols and addition and subtraction. But if you see the nature of these representations, they are very beautiful geometrical shapes sometimes. And all that is explained by in terms of chemical bonds of different types. As so we say, ionic, covalent, um, and hydrogen bonds. Questions to this point? Let's take a 10-minute break.